Can I be honest with you uh, this morning? To be fair, I hope you know I'm honest with you every Sunday morning. <laughs> but uh, can I be especially honest with you this week? Uh, when I looked at the passage at the beginning of the week, I really questioned whether we should be doing this passage at all. I don't think I've ever done that with a Bible passage uh, at the beginning of the week. I've not understood it, but I've never thought, oh, should we avoid this one? But before us this morning, we have a chapter that, to all intents and purposes, is about curtains. Curtains. What can we possibly learn about living for Christ? What can we possibly take away that's useful from a chapter about curtains? Now, it's not that I'm anti-curtains, don't hear me wrong, unless you're talking about the 90s hairstyle, uh, you know, that that I would be anti. Uh, You know, curtains are great, and if I didn't say so, Rachel Laidler, of course, who who makes curtains for a living, uh, would not be happy. But don't be long in a book about interior design, rather than a Sunday morning thinking about Jesus. Isn't this more about changing rooms than about changing hearts? But do you know, as the week's gone on, and I've looked more carefully at this passage, I've become convinced that this stuff is really at the heart of much of what we see in the New Testament. Now, I know that that's quite a big statement, but hopefully you'll see that this morning that that's true. What is pictured in these curtains, these veils, these screens, are actually some of the massive themes in Scripture. And they point us straight to the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross. So I should have given a spoiler alert there, shouldn't I? But it's reminded me as I've gone through it this week, that the scriptures really are a gold mine of gospel. They're gospel-filled goodness. If we take the time to read them carefully and just spend that time thinking them through. So I know I've set the bar quite high there, but let's see as we go through. So first of all, we see a covering containing, really concealing curtain. I won't read them to us again, but verses 1 to 14. Now when I read through 1 to 14 at the beginning of the week, I must admit, I didn't really have a clue even what it was describing. I think whenever I've read this before, you know when you read something and your eyes sort of glaze over a bit, and you sort of, you've got to the end of it, but you're not really sure what you've read. And then you sort of look back and you go, well, hang on, there were 10 curtains. No, there were 11 curtains. No, there were two sets of five curtains. No, wait, it was a veil. No, wait, it was a screen. But it was twisted linen, but wasn't it goat's hair? Wasn't it tanned brown skins? No, goat skin. Oh, hang on, wait, there's different translations here. I don't know, I, I, I read it, originally read this in a different passage. I was expecting, a different translation, I was expecting something different. You've got goat skins, badger skins, fine leather, hides of sea cows, skins of dolphins. That's before you even get into the dimensions. Four cubits, 28 cubits, 30 cubits. What's a cubit? So let me try and help. Part of the issue is that in verses 1 to 14, we're only describing part of the whole structure, okay? We're only talking about this bit, okay? This bit at the back. We're not talking about the whole structure with it all the way round. We're just talking about the tent at the back, which housed the items that we talked about last week. It was the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. That's what you had in that, that bit there. It's just one tent that it's describing here. But that one tent in these verses has four layers of curtains on it, as well as a veil inside and a screen at the front. We'll come back to that uh, later on. But the breakdown looks something a little bit like this. So in your basic inside layer, you've got this uh, finely embroidered linen, okay? 
And then that was sort of two sets of five that were joined together, what that line is in the middle. Then on top of that, there's another tent to cover that, uh, which was made of goat's hair, sort of fabric over the top. Again, that was sort of clipped together. Then over the top of that, you've got a layer of tanned ram skins. They would have been quite red. Sorry that it's a bit dark uh, on there, but they're sort of dark red. And then on top of that, goat skins, which is even darker. Uh, you can't really see it very well, but that was partly the point, was each layer sort of hides the one underneath. Uh, that last one is a bit tricky to translate exactly what it was, which is why I think goat's uh, skin seems to be the best. It also gets complicated because those last two layers, they're sometimes counted as one. The reason you get the different measurements that we've had is because as you put one layer on top of another layer, your measurements have to get bigger. Uh, so the first layer of embroidered linen would have been about a, a foot and a half off the floor on the two sides, presumably so it didn't get damaged by sort of running along the floor. And the next layer covered it and went right to the floor. A foot and a half, by the way, at the side, that's about a cubit. Uh, we've already had metric problems this morning, but uh, it's about 45 centimetres if you're dealing with metric. I think of everything as those 30 centimetre rulers. So about 30 centimetre ruler and a half. That's a cubit, okay? It's the length from the end of your elbow to the top of your finger. But it differed depending on how tall you are, which is why it's quite tricky uh, to work out. The loops and the golden clasps are mentioned there, and they're there to hold the curtains together. That's why it goes on about all the loops and holes and clasps. So that, in verse 6, the tabernacle may be a single hole. So there were no gaps. There was no way to sneak into the tabernacle, because it was a whole unit. It was, it was cl- clasped together. And wholeness is a huge deal in the law. The tabernacle has to be a whole thing, a complete thing, a perfect thing. But the bigger question we need to ask in these verses is, why were there any curtains at all? Why not just have it open? Well, it's not just a weather consideration, it's a keep out consideration. The curtains cordoned off the tent so that no one else could enter. It contained the tent covering it from prying eyes. And from the outside, maybe I'll go back one so you see it a little bit better. From the outside, it would have looked very normal. It would have just looked like a tent. Any sort of tent that you could see anywhere in that region of the world. The embroidered curtains lay within with all their bright colours. They couldn't be seen from the outside. The various layers made it waterproof, yes, but they also hid the wonders inside from the outside world. So imagine it this way. If someone came to live on your street, uh, they bought a house, but you never saw them, and they never opened their curtains. Now, on, on, where, on our road, that would get mentioned. Well, they never opened their curtains, you know, down the road. But the message would be clear, wouldn't it? Keep out. Stay away. Don't come near. That's the message of a house with all the curtains drawn, isn't it? And that was what it was like for the Israelites. God had moved in, if you like, just down the road, but the curtains remained closed. You never got to see inside. Whilst God was among them, the message was also at the same time, sort of stay away, keep your distance. And the message was reinforced by the cherubim, the cherubs. Now we think of cherubs uh, probably a bit like this, don't we? You know. 
you're thinking of the sort of painters who do their nice little drawings of little babies with wings. But that's more to do with selling paintings, really, than it is to do with the Bible. Actually, cherubim looked probably something more like this in the way that they're described in the Bible. They were terrifying bird-like creatures with animal and human faces. They were guardian angels in the Old Testament with flaming swords. I did have a flaming sword, but it wouldn't appear this morning, but flaming swords to ward people off. They were the sort of bouncers of the angelic world, a sort of sacred security squad. And that's what their function is here. They're also on the curtains. They're there on the veil, but we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But they symbolically encircled the tabernacle, almost like a security service. Uh, We see them encircling God's throne in Ezekiel's vision with the same sort of idea. That this mystical, amazing, supernatural beings, but again, actually from the outside, they're hidden from human sight. They're there, guarding the temple, but you can't really see them. The embroidered curtains were covered by those other layers on top, and only the priests were actually allowed to go in and see these. Many have noted that that gave a sort of special hidden nature to the spiritual reality seen in the tent. The holies of holies, yes, because that's right at the centre, no light in there, smoke from all the altar of incense, further to hide what's in there. But the whole tent within the tabernacle had a hidden glory. You wouldn't see this kind of thing. From most angles, it would have just seemed like an ordinary tent, apart from the entrance screen, which again we'll come back to later. Even the curtains themselves were covered by other curtains to hide this. Everything was contained and covered and hidden away. Now, if you were with us last week, we learned that the tabernacle is a huge picture of Christ, especially his incarnation, when he tabernacled amongst us, when he lived among us. So isn't it fitting, in a way, the glory of the tabernacle, all the stuff that's on the inside, is hidden. That from the outside, you would not see the wonder that lie within. It's veiled by all those layers of curtains. Hebrews 10.20 speaks of Christ's flesh as like a veil in the temple, like a curtain. We'll come back to that a a bit later as well. But let me put it this way. This tabernacle had no glory or majesty from the outside. If it had no glory or majesty at all, the picture wouldn't work, would it? Because Christ does have that glory. If it's all glory and majesty were on show, then it wouldn't work as a picture of Christ either, because his glory and majesty was hidden. So all these layers of curtains allow for both to be true. They contain and conceal what lies within. They cover it up that there might be glory, yes, but an unseen glory. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. You would not be able to tell from Christ's appearance that he was God. There was no halo around his head. There was no light emanating from his skin. There was glory there, yes, but it was hidden, veiled. It took supernatural eyes to see Christ for who he is. It still does. But once you've seen it, there's no denying it. It's there. So the tabernacle gives us this wonderful picture of veiled glory. But secondly, we also note in these verses, sorry, that's kind of glowing, there we go, a compass-coordinated construction. That's what we see from verses 15 
to 30. Again, I don't want your eyes to glaze over, so I won't read it out again, but do have it in, in front of you. The next section focuses on the frames that made up the sort of scaffolding of the tent underneath the curtains. These were the sort of tent poles of the structure, if you like. They were made up of several frames set with a crossbar for stability. The frames were made from acacia wood, and the crossbars were covered with gold. They uh, were to be joined at the top, but not at the bottom, so they could fit into silver bases that would hold them up. Probably not gold at the bottom, because they were touching the ground. And again, that idea is that a little bit further away, a little bit uh, of protection. The the more close to the centre you were, the more gold. Uh, The more uncontaminated, the more gold. But these would touch the ground. But the shape that they would make was basically a box, a cuboid. Basically what I showed you before in the shape of the, the tabernacle. Now some historians think there might have been a central beam sort of running through the middle so it wouldn't be a flat roof. I think if you've ever had a flat roof you understand the problems uh, of flat roofs. But there's no mention of it here. It's a very plain and, and simple structure that we get. The main thing that we find out here at the tabernacle is that it's to be set up according to the points of a compass. There's a north side in verse 20 and 35, a south side in verse 18 and 35, an east and a west, verse 20 and 27. Wherever the tabernacle was to be set up, it was to be set up facing the same direction according to the points of the compass. Why? So that the entrance was always to the east. So as you headed further in, you were actually heading west always as you went closer and closer to the centre of, of the temple, to the uh, Ark of the Covenant. In the Bible, heading west is nearly always associated with coming closer to God and his purposes. The Israelites, despite being to the south of the Promised Land, for example, um, they uh, headed across the Jordan heading west. Abraham heads west to the Promised Land. Conversely, to head east, I've got to get this right from where you're looking, Hannah. Uh, heading east, okay, east, there we go. Uh, east is to head away from God. So you read in Genesis again, Cain goes east to the land of Nod. Mankind goes east to the plain of Shinar to build the Tower of Babel. Lot heads east when faced with a choice uh, by Abraham where to go, east to Sodom and Gomorrah. West, towards God, east, away from God. You see it repeated uh, throughout scripture. That doesn't mean, though, that we need to head across the seas into the west, as they do in the Lord of the Rings, to the Undying Lands, though Tolkien's almost certainly picking up this pattern in scripture. Nor does it mean that America is the promised land, uh, despite (laughs) what our American cousins try to tell us. We don't need to change the lyrics of give thanks with a grateful heart to go west where the skies are blue even though those songs actually have the same tune. Sorry if you can't hear that. But it isn't a prophetic call to sort of colonise the West of America, as sometimes it was taken up. What is it then? Well, the points of the compass are rarely picked up in the New Testament. Usually it's just phrases meaning the whole world, like from the East and from the West. There is one famous journey West, though, in the Gospels. A journey to come closer to God and to worship him. The wise men who come from the east. They come to Jerusalem, to the temple, but they find that the one they're looking for isn't there. No, he's lying on a bed of straw, or possibly toddling in a temporary home by this point. 
The king is no longer seated on a throne at the west end of the tabernacle or temple, inaccessible and unapproachable. Actually, what they find then is that a king is now among them. God with us, Emmanuel. So the fulfilment of this is less about the point of a compass, but where the compass was pointing. We don't pray and worship now pointing a particular direction as they did in the Old Testament. But our prayer and worship is now directed through Christ. We can pray in any direction so long as we come through Christ. We can approach God pointing north, east, south, west. I haven't even worked out which direction that would be in this building. So long as we approach God through Christ. So thankfully, actually, on a Sunday morning now, we don't need a compass out to sort of work out which direction we should be pointing. We just need Christ. But back here, though, they they did. They actually needed a compass to sort of work it out or look where the rising of the sun was. They needed to have the entrance on the east side. And that meant, again, that the tabernacle was a copy of the Garden of Eden, which is what we were seeing last week. There was an entrance to that garden, if you read it back in Genesis 3, and it was on the east side, we're told. It was guarded by a cherub, uh, as was the tabernacle. And so our last point, a veiled threat, apologies for the pun. Oh, it's it's verses 31 to 37, not uh, 1 to 14. The final items that we meet here are the veil and the entrance screen. The entrance screen is there as a sort of front door uh, to the tent. So it would be uh, these things that we're talking about here. Uh, There was no curtain here, so a screen was put in place with five pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The bases of the pillars were to be bronze, not silver, like the other ones, a sign that we're moving further away from the Holy of Holies as the metals get less precious. Sort of like moving down the medals table uh, in the Olympics. The metal, uh, I should say, possibly the metal wasn't bronze as we know it nowadays, but it was certainly a less precious metal than gold or silver. The entrance screen, again, blocked the inner part of the tent from view. Even if you were in the outer court, you couldn't really see in. There was no opening of doors or hatches to sort of let you come in and have a look around. Now, there are no cherubim mentioned here. All the cherubim are hidden from view. But it was a way to stop people from from going in. The more significant item, though, is the veil. Further in, it gets a bit more time. And the veil was made of the same material as the curtains, uh, inner curtains around the tent. The veil was held up by four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. It's slightly smaller because it was inside rather than outside that little uh, section. It had silver bases, not bronze. And this did have cherubim uh, embroidered on it as she went in. And this veil gave the Holy of Holies its own angelic bouncers. If the general message of the tabernacle was keep out, then this was doubly, trebly so. This was like those sort of warning signs of hazardous sites. Keep out, quarantined area, danger of death. But there were no vain, vain, uh, vain threats. The high priest, when he entered the Holy of Holies, had to wear bells so that those outside could tell whether he dropped down dead in the presence of God. He had to be attached to a sort of rope so they could drag out his body if he didn't survive entering the Holy of Holies. Two of Aaron's sons would die 
after offering unauthorised fire in the tabernacle, consumed by God's holy fire. So these bouncers were not so much to protect God, as though God needed protection, but they were there to stop people coming too close, lest they should die. The veil was a big no-entry sign, telling people to keep out, keep away. God would not be among the people in that way through the tabernacle. People could not approach God. Now, even if you don't know much about the tabernacle, you've probably heard of the veil. It was referred to in a couple of the songs that we sang this morning. In the New Testament, though, confusingly, it's referred to as the curtain, often. Yes, another curtain. We meet it at a key moment in the New Testament. In fact, the key moment in the New Testament, when Jesus dies on the cross. Just at that point, this veil, this curtain, gets mentioned again. And that's really for the first time since Exodus. It gets a slight mention in Numbers, but uh, this is when we really see it again, for the first time. It says this in Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Seems almost random, doesn't it? Though we talk about Jesus' death, and then suddenly we're talking about something in the temple. But it's mentioned in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. At the point of Jesus' death, this curtain, or its successor from the curtain we were talking about at least, is miraculously torn from top to bottom. Now I don't know if you've ever thought about it about this, but God could have miraculously broken all sorts of things in the temple, couldn't he? To give the picture that the temple was no longer in business. He could have miraculously broken the altar. The sacrifices are over. It's true, but it's not what happened. He could have broken the fabric of the temple itself, the walls, sent it crumbling down. But he doesn't. That happens when the Romans come in and destroy it 40 years later. He could have broken the lamp, the table, the bronze basin. But he doesn't. Of all the things he chooses to break, he breaks the curtain. So what's the message? What's the point? The point is access. Access to the Father. The curtain, we said, was a big no-entry sign. Well, now the curtain has come down. The veil has gone. The temple curtain is torn down. The living way to heaven is seen. Through Christ, the middle wall is gone. And all who will may enter in. It's no coincidence that straight after we're told that the curtain is torn in two, the very next thing we see is someone coming into the kingdom. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that he, uh, this, in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Now it's not that the centurion saw the curtain torn down. It's that the centurion experiences the effects of the curtain being torn down. There is now a way open to the Father for all, even those who took part in his son's death. If the curtain was there as a message, keep out, then surely the tearing of the, me- of the curtain is the message, come in. Come in, draw near, find welcome. You know those cheesy bosses who say cliches like, you know, my door is always open. Except for it's not, is it? There are times when their door is closed and you can't go in. 
But with God, the door is now firmly open because of Christ. All who will may enter in and find fellowship with the Father through Christ. But it's not just an invitation to unbelievers to come in and and join. As believers, we need to remember that the way to the Father is open. God's door is always open. He's not inaccessible in the way that he was in the Old Testament. Christ has opened the way to the Father. And we can approach him now to find mercy and grace. The message is no longer stay out. The message is come in. But as Christians, do we still live like that curtain is up? Like the living way hasn't been opened up by Christ's death? Do we come to the Father in prayer, in worship? Or do we treat him as though the door is closed? Or only open once a week? Or only open once a year as it was in the Old Testament? Communion, fellowship with the Father, is not a burden we bear. It's a privilege that's there to be enjoyed. The door to our Father's office is always open. Or do we try and come in through someone else? As though we don't really believe that we can approach God. You know, I'll go through someone who's a bit holier than I am. People ask me to pray for them or for things that they, they want prayer for. And I do. But it is worth remembering that we come to the Father. All of us are allowed to come to the Father without going through someone else. In Christ, we have access to our loving Heavenly Father. As individuals, we can come ourselves. What if we only communicated with someone through someone else? You know, if my children sort of sent other people to ask me for things for them, you know, messengers, come to go to Dad. In Christ, we can bring our needs to the Father. We don't need to go through anyone else but Christ, who is the very image of the Father. In other words, we don't need priests or pastors to communicate with the Father for us. That's the privilege of every believer. All of us can come in. So why wouldn't we do that? Perhaps for some of us it's because we don't feel worthy. Because deep down we feel the door should be shut, should be closed to us, that the temple should be put back up. But that's why it was torn into a Christ's death. When the barrier between us and God was dealt with. When Christ died for our sin. Yes, as believers we still have sin. But it's sin that's dealt with on the cross. We may feel like we're in debt to God, but the debt was paid at the cross. We may may feel like slaves to sin, but we were freed at the cross. It takes time, doesn't it, for our heads to get out of that slave mentality and into that son mentality. But that son mentality means that we come in and not stay out. It's like all those children during lockdown when uh, people were working from home and they had to do everything on Zoom. And you get those sort of news stories where a child would sort of appear at the back of the screen coming into his dad's office and they're there on national TV trying to sort of shove them back out the door. Well, unlike that, when we come in, we can expect a smiling face, can't we, when we come in. The sign says, come in, not keep out. So curtains, yes, but more than curtains. And in Christ, the curtain is gone. The way is open. 
So come in. Christ bids us come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that Christ has opened the way through the curtain. Father, thank you that he has torn it down. And Father, we can enjoy fellowship with you. We can enjoy relationship with you. We can enjoy closeness to you that they could only dream about in the Old Testament. So Father, we thank you for Christ who's opened up that living way. Father, help us to take advantage of that privilege. Father, may we be in your presence, in prayer, in worship, in our thoughts through the day. Father, help us to enjoy that communion with you, because Christ has made it possible by his death on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.